Welcome back to the program. The world is a dangerous place. We no longer have the moral clarity and security of the Cold War or earlier wars where we knew precisely who our enemy was. Today, as non-state actors battle nations and each other, the asymmetry of conflict has created new opportunities for paid armies and for mercenaries on all sides. Just as we outsource call centers and the delivery of packages, today we outsource war, from the protection of the high seas to making our own national interest more palatable. But at what cost and what might be the human and global consequence of unleashing the paid dogs of war? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Sean McFate. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, an associate professor at the National Defense University. He teaches U.S. national security policy at Georgetown. He's a former member of the U.S. military, as well as a former paid military contractor. It is my pleasure to welcome Sean McFate here to talk about his new book, The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Jeff. It's good to have you here. One of the things you point out is that when we look back to World War II, there were only about 10% of the forces that were paid forces, paid contractors, and now we're talking 50% in Iraq and Afghanistan. Talk a little bit about where the tipping point in this really was. That's a great question. So as you do point out, um, you know, in World War II, the U.S. only contracted about 10% of its forces overseas. Um, in Vietnam, it was 20%. In Iraq, it was 50%. In Afghanistan, it was closer to 70 And one question is, you know, should this trend continue in the next generation, will it be 80 to 90% contractors? And when really did it amp up? When did we go from the kind of situation that we saw in World War II, where it was so small, to really the dramatic numbers that you're talking about today? It ramped up in the last 10 years. It's when the United States of America, um, you know, began the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And for whatever reason, the policymakers didn't think that they would last that long. And they found out that the all-volunteer military that we have could not supply the manpower that was needed. So this opened a door or opened a Pandora's box, depending on your analogy, to what we have today. To what extent was there a clear-cut decision made in the Pentagon, in the White House, even in Congress, with respect to the public policy that would allow this kind of, these kind of numbers to go forward? Well, like so many things, in my opinion, about the Iraq or Afghanistan war, there really wasn't a policy made. It just sort of happened. Um, you know, policymakers faced three terrible decisions 10 years ago when they realized this war would not simply quickly abate. They could either prematurely withdraw from Afghanistan and Iraq, which would have been political suicide. They could have had a Vietnam-era draft to fill the armed forces ranks, which would also have been political, political suicide. Or they could have contracted it out. And that's what they did, both Republican and Democrats. Once they contracted out, there obviously were companies that were standing by. There were those that, that obviously had to see where policy was going in this direction, people like Eric Prince and others. Talk a little about that. 
Yeah, this this industry um, literally exploded almost overnight uh, into a multi-billion-dollar industry. Uh, there were only a handful of companies initially that could do this. The Dyncor International, MPRI, Eric Prince's Blackwater, and a few others. Uh, ten years later, there's a lot more. Uh, one of the ways they, they get ahead of the policy curve is they, is they hire retired generals and ambassadors and admirals to serve on their boards. And they are able to sort of read the tea leaves as to where policy is going and make business connections. Was there among the contractors, Dynacorp, who you worked for at, at one point, and, and some of the others, were there areas of specialization, things that these companies said that they could do better than other companies and better than the military? How, how, would, how did they sell themselves? They did. Uh, there are things that they said they could do, and there are things that the U.S. military did not want to do that made it a, a natural fit for contractors. For example, you know, our military has an, a sort of identity of a, of a military of an assault, not occupation. So when it came to like raising security forces and ministries of defense, uh, they were happy to contract a lot of that out. And contractors were happy to to take that up because they could leverage private security, best practices, efficiencies. And some of the things that these in this industry does is very good. Um, you know, we hear about the bad news, but not everything they do is bad. One of the things that we have seen as these companies have grown is that suddenly the military and the U.S. government is not the only employer, that there's lots of other companies out there, shipping lines and various other organizations that are quick to hire these mercenaries, these soldiers. Yeah, and this is the bigger worry, is that the U.S. sort of created an industry that has been proscribed by international law for centuries, which is private force. Uh, and private force is actually how most military history was run. Uh, mercenaries were common from the Roman era to the Middle Ages, and in recent centuries it was outlawed by states. And the U.S. has sort of re-legitimized using them, and others are quick to, uh, to follow on this. For example, uh, Putin is allegedly using Chechen mercenaries in the Ukraine. Nigeria just hired 100 private military contractors out of South Africa to help them fight Boko Haram. Uh, oil companies are using these uh, private military companies. You also have counter-piracy private navies operating off of Somalia and the Gulf of Guinea in Africa. I mean, this industry is now proliferating around the world beyond U.S. vision and beyond U.S. control. One of the things that, that makes this so dangerous, arguably, and that creates this kind of perfect storm is that all of this is happening at precisely the same time we see global conflicts, not between nation states, but really between non-state actors and suddenly introducing into this mix non-state military forces. That's right. So this is part of a wider global trend that has been unraveling since the end of the Cold War of the rise of non-state actors. And what's particularly worrisome about this is that this is, you know, private armies and private navies and maybe private air forces with drones can give all sorts of actors out there uh, the ability to wage war for any reason that they want, as long as they can afford it. Um, and, you know, when you have an industry out there invested in conflict, there will be more conflict and war going forward. As we saw again in the Middle Ages, mercenaries create war. 
Talk a little bit about some of the other work that these companies are doing, particularly in the the anti-piracy area and some of the other areas that they're working in today outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. The last question, I, I, I don't know what you heard of that last question, but what I said is talk about some of the other places that these companies are working today outside of Iraq and Afghanistan for shipping companies, dealing with piracy, and some of the areas that they're employed in today. Sure. Um, so this industry is actually working mostly outside of Iraq and Afghanistan these days, from what we can tell. Um, and not everything they're doing is bad. Uh, they're helping private, uh, they're helping shipping lines with counter piracy. Uh, you know, if you're, for example, uh, if you have a freighter or an oil tanker that's going through pirate waters, you have ships that are sort of floating arsenals with, with warriors on them that they will helicopter to your, your tanker and they will protect the tanker as it goes through pirated waters. Um, oil companies as well as humanitarian organizations are using this industry to protect their people and their assets and their pipelines. Um, but we're also seeing them hired by places like Abu Dhabi who hire, for example, former El Salvadorian special forces soldiers to create a, sort of their own sort of private military Abu Dhabi to protect Abu Dhabi. Um, we are seeing them being used again in, in Ukraine and other places like that. So it's, it's a, they're used by a host of people out there. Uh, and one question is, you know, will the United Nations one day use this industry to augment peacekeeping forces? What has been the attitude of the United Nations towards this to date? Well, the United Nations is inherently a, a state-centric organization, um, and there's this story that during the Rwanda genocide in 1994, a mercenary corporation called Executive Outcomes out of South Africa, which was truly a mercenary corporation, not like Blackwater and Dyncor, could actually wage its own wars on by itself, um, went to the United Nations and said, look, there's a genocide unfolding in Rwanda right now, and we know it takes you six months to generate a peacekeeping mission. What we can do for $120 million is go there in two weeks and set up islands of humanity to protect the innocent against the genocideers, uh, and just hold down the fort, if you will, until you can get a, a force on the ground. And at the time, the head of UN peacekeeping operations by the name of Kofi Annan, who later on became the Secretary General, said no. He said that the world is not ready for privatized peacekeeping, but the world wasn't ready for you know, 800,000 people to die either. And I think that the UN historically has been against private military forces, very strongly against it, but they are understaffed around the world for increasing peacekeeping missions, and they may be forced one day to have this difficult conversation with themselves. One of the areas we're seeing this is in the cyber areas as well, cyber mercenaries and these hackback companies that you talk about. Yeah, so the other really weird dimension of this is that there's, you know, cyber also has its own, its own domain of warfare. Um, so if you're a company, for example, and you're getting hacked, you say you're an American company, and you're like uh, getting hacked by the Russian mob or by China, under U.S. law, the only thing you can do is play defense. And, uh, and of course, that, you know, that's a big risk because, you know, you look at the CEO of Target, you know, um, Target.com, and uh, the, the CEO actually had to resign after they got cyber hacked. So what some companies are considering doing, which is illegal, is hiring hackback companies. And these are sort of 
cyber mercenaries. They, they live offshore and they hack the hackers that come after you. So if you get hacked, they find out who hacked you and then they will hack them back in, in retaliation. Talk a little bit about the attitude of the military towards these companies. And, and it really has evolved over time, particularly as a result of Iraq and Afghanistan, where the attitude now is, is really pretty negative as far as these outside contractors among American military. That's right. I mean, it's always been negative, although most of the ranks of these contracted companies are from former military people uh, like myself. I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, and then I got out and uh, went, to, quote, to the dark side, unquote, uh, went mercenary, unquote. Um, you know, I teach at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., which is a war college. And we, our students are colonels and generals even, and they're not just from the U.S. military, but we also have a lot of uh, colonels and generals from around the world. This is a premier war college, and countries like to send their best and brightest here for an education, a one-year education. And they all universally despise private military contractors, all of them, whether they're American or they're Indian or they're British or whatever. And the reason is this is that, you know, if you work for the U.S. military, you don't just work for it, you serve. You take an oath, and you, your sacred oath is that you will defend this country and, if necessary, sacrifice yourself for this country. Uh, and in exchange, um, you know, society greets you as hero, uh, as uh, somebody special. You're, uh, it's not just flying business class. Um, and contractors take the sacred oath and turn it upside down and make it into a, a transaction that you don't really care. You're just doing it for the money. And this is uh, an affront to the warrior ethos of professional soldiers around the world. And yet it's consistent with the larger framework of the country right now being as transactionally focused as it is. In many ways, it fits right in. It does. I mean, let's not forget that the reason why contractors are so used in the military is because it, it, doesn't, it allows citizens to say we want to go to war, but we don't want to serve ourselves. Um, and this is maybe a troubling uh, issue as well that the U.S. military, well, members of the U.S. military I've talked to also have this, uh, this issue that they think that, you know, if, if there was sort of more skin in the game by American public, we would have less wars. And a lot of military people I work with um, are not as, a, you know, are not in favor of going to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, long term. You know, they're, despite what, what some people might think, they, they, they see this, these sort of forever wars as not necessarily a good thing for the country or for the military. Talk about what's been discussed among government officials and even among the military in terms of the policy that, that takes place when these contractors are perhaps captured and, and maybe even held for ransom. Well, that's a very, that's a tricky issue. Um, first of all, most of the contractors in this industry are not American. Uh, even the American companies, they may have the senior leadership might be American. They may have American faces and be headquartered in the United States of America, but these are multinational corporations. And only a minority of the people are actually American. They could be from Philippines. They could be from you know, Mexico. They can be from, you know, wherever. Um, but if Americans get captured, contracted there's a there's an issue um, because um, 
you know, it, it's tricky. What's the obligation that, you know, these, these people were in harm's way. They weren't sent there by the U.S. military per se. They, maybe they were, but if they're working for oil companies, they would not be. Um, and a lot of commanders who are in the military who to say it's in Iraq, they're like, I don't really feel like we need to risk American soldiers to go after private military contractors who were kind of reckless in, in what they were doing. So there's a, there's a big controversy about what do, we, you know, what's the, what do we do about armed civilian contractors in war zones and who's responsible for them in case they get in trouble. Right. The other part of it is that this goes to the global nature of recruitment is that we're, we're driving down the price of these people because there's more and more of them around the world, which means that the stability, the quality, all aspects of the people that are being recruited is also arguably going down. It is. I mean, you have to think of war is now like we're, we're commoditizing conflict. And so think of like a, a shirt being made in, say, China versus United States of America. It's cheaper in China. Labor costs are cheaper. And that's exactly what's happening in the world of private military industry. Uh, prices are being driven down because, you know, hiring uh, an, a special forces soldier who came out of, say, Nigeria versus that came out of the United States of America is much cheaper. Um, and they may be just about as good for certain tasks. Um, and so we're, we're seeing uh, a true free market for force developing right now. Who is talking about the ways in which this might impact policy over the medium and long run? You know, sadly, there's been a real dearth of discussion about this. There's been, a, in my opinion, this sort of attitude in, the, in Washington, D.C., that once the U.S. is done in Iraq and Afghanistan, once it's done with this industry, the industry will magically go away, just like, uh, you know, a brigade or a battalion of infantry might magically be demobilized to go away after a big war, as we saw in World War II. But, of course, that's not happening. The industry is seeking future and customers and clients. It's a, they're profit-maximizing entities, these companies. Um, you know, and another big concern, of course, is there's no regulation for this industry or minimal regulation, no, no serious regulation. Even after using this industry for a decade, this country still doesn't have a regulatory framework to control the outsourcing of war. Does the recent verdict, jury verdict in the Blackwater trial, have any impact on this? Will that in any way set the stage, perhaps, for that regulation or for a more firm legal framework? You know, I'm really skeptical about it. Um, people have raised this, that, you know, the, the, the four Blackwater contractors who were at Nisource Square who killed 17 people in Nisource Square in 2007, the fact that they were found guilty shows accountability and will be a wake-up call to the industry. And I would say, I would, I would not say so. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, the problem if you want to call it a problem of prime military industry is systemic and sort of convicting four individuals does not fix a systemic problem. Uh, if this country, the United States is going to use this industry, we should probably have some sort of regulation of it. Uh, and there's even a bigger problem is that the industry is now globalized. It's no longer a U.S. only phenomenon. It's not something that the U.S. can even control. So beyond the fact that they're, you know, uh, what happens if, if it's you know, a bunch of Serbian uh, private military contractors hired by Uganda to go attack something in Somalia, right? That's, that's a bigger question. One of the things you point out that even human rights groups who you would think would be arguing against this, even they've hired these private contractors on occasion. 
They have. I mean, humanitarian workers have a, a moral dilemma as well. They, if they're in a place like uh, the Eastern Congo, which is very dangerous, or again, like Somalia, um, and their people are being attacked by militia and bandits, they can either leave the country and not continue their mission of aid, or they can hire these private military companies to protect their people and protect their assets. Um, and so there's a lot of you know, tough decisions being made in some of these boardrooms about what is the morally right thing to do. How have European nations, NATO in particular, and even China, been looking at this? Well, initially, um, European nations, with the exception of Great Britain, which has a history of this in some ways, they look down on this. You know, the French especially, they're like, we, we don't believe, we think this is morally, you know, repugnant. We think this is wrong. Um, but over the past five years, they've quietly gotten themselves in, more and more in this business. You see private military companies coming out of Russia, out of, um, you know, out of France, all other, other European countries. Uh, they're involved in places like Libya. Uh, they are working for potentially oil companies that might go to Libya someday. Um, so th these companies are being more and more accepted, again, because the U.S. itself has used this, this industry so extensively. Uh, others, you know, see it as, as somewhat legitimate now. It's interesting. You were talking about the historical antecedents for this. In many ways, we can look back at the 12th and 13th century and see interesting parallels. That's exactly right. I mean, we've been here before. This is not a new phenomenon. In fact, it was a very common phenomenon. In the Middle Ages, um, you know, especially in places like Italy, which were sort of like Iraq is today, it's hard to believe that, but that was the case in North Italy, um, you had these private military companies that were full of people from different places, from, from not just Italy, but from France and Switzerland, from Scotland, from Sweden, and they'd all, they have corporate structures, and um, they were called condottiori in Italian, which means contractor. And they would get a contract to fight for uh, these, what they call free companies, and the contract even had things like booty clauses, which means, you know, if you, if you sack a city, you get so many percentage of the, of the shares. We've been here before. Uh, you know, contract warfare is the way wars were fought in the Middle Ages and most of military history. Uh, in fact, in the Middle Ages, um, you had what they called condottiori, uh, which means contractor. Uh, they would form private companies that were much like multinational companies today. They had people who were like Italian, Swiss, Germans, Scots, Swedes, and uh, they get a contract and they would work for the highest bidder. And that could be a king, it could be a prince, it could even be the Pope. In fact, the Popes often used private uh, military armies to wage wars. To what extent do you think that any effort is going to be made by the U.S. government to address this? You know, it's amazing that um, after 10 years of using this industry in Iraq and Afghanistan, which has caused a lot of problems for the United States, uh, when you think of Blackwater and some other issues, uh, there's still almost no regulation in this country. And the reason is this. Um, if you just if you try to strongly regulate this industry, it would move offshore. That's the only thing that would happen. Um, and now that this industry is, is really becoming globalized, uh, I think the, the moment where the U.S. could regulate it and hope that that would stick for the world, that moment is long gone. Um, we're not going to see a Geneva Convention or protocol anytime soon. Um, so I think that um, the only way to regulate this industry is to shape market conditions that incentivize good behavior and punish bad behavior. 
Is the demand simply too strong today? The demand is strong. I mean, you're, this is, you know, the commodification of conflict basically provides security in a deeply insecure world. So anybody who needs security, which is, which is a lot of people, uh, are going to turn to this budding industry. And that might be humanitarian groups, uh, the United Nations and oil companies and shipping lines, but it could also be rebel groups, insurgency groups, uh, could be uh, regimes. I mean, Gaddafi hired a bunch of mercenaries before he fell in Libya to protect, to protect him. Um, there's all sorts of application, good and bad, for this industry. Are there any upsides to all of this? Can you look at it from a policy point of view and find any reason why there are advantages to this kind of activity? Uh, yes. I mean, let's not forget that the industry does offer some, uh, some good benefits. Um, they could be a powerful tool for stability operations overseas. Um, they can augment peacekeeping missions to the United Nations. They can, they can secure, again, NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Um, but we are at a precipice right now. We have a choice. Um, we can either do nothing, which is kind of what we're doing, um, as not just the United States, but as an international community, and let this, this industry continue to evolve into a true free market for force with mercenaries like we saw in the Middle Ages. And such a world uh, will create more war. Not World War III, but these low-grade, constant wars that are continually plaguing the Middle East, Africa, and other places. That will just continue in its intensity. Or we can work with this industry, with leaders of the industry, to create public-private partnerships. Um, and create a licensing and registration scheme for either the United States or, or the UN that you know, helps them, you know, we can say we want to do these things. We want you to provide def purely defensive um, you know, operations. We want to we vet and do the training and, and sort of spot checking uh, your people. Um, but only something like that would have an effect. Uh, and working in a, in a public-private partnership rather than having these as free agents in conflict zones. Sean McFate, his book is The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order. Sean, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.